0: Optimal, At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question?
1: Now, what is the appropriate time? What if I did the eye? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal
0: endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of the Tim Ferriss show where I interview and deconstruct world class performers to tease out all of the tactical actionable bits that you can use. The morning rituals, the favorite books, the meals, the workouts, the influences, all of those things that you can replicate and pull into your own life. This episode is chock full of all sorts of good information. It was a lot of fun to do and there are two guests, Stanley McChrystal and Chris Fussell. Stanley McChrystal retired from the U.S. Army as a four-star general after more than 34 years of service. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates described him as, quote, perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I've ever met, end quote. From 2003 to 2008, he served as commander of the Joint Special Operations Command, Otherwise known as JSAC, where he was credited with the death of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. His last assignment was as commander of all American and coalition forces in Afghanistan. He's a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and the co-founder of Crosslead, a leadership consulting firm. Chris Fussell is a former U.S. Navy SEAL officer also former aide-de-camp for General McChrystal, and we'll get into what that means, and a current senior executive at Crosslead. And in this conversation, which is very wide-ranging, and I think particularly important for people who are anti-military or uh, have very strong feelings, pro or con, related to war, to listen to, we dig into... Of course, some very personal habits and backgrounds. So Stanley's very well known for eating one meal per day. Why is that? What does he eat? We dig into it and work out all of the very personal bits we dig into for both of these gentlemen. And then we also talk about combat. We talk about the realities of fear, of death, of combat, of high stakes, how to come back from uh, death in the field, all of these things that I think have implications across many, many disciplines, including for the private sector, quite frankly, although the stakes are often lower. So I hope you enjoy this interview. There's a lot here. There are a couple of areas where we get into a little bit of inside baseball uh, related to special operations and things like that. Please bear with me and go through it because there are gems hidden throughout, I think, from both of these gentlemen. So I hope you enjoy and thank you for listening. Dan and Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks for for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, I have been looking forward to this and have way more questions than we'll ever get through today. But I have been fascinated by not only the military and the training of the military, the pros and cons of different aspects of the military, but also how those translate to the civilian world. And after the four-hour body and the four-hour chef has spent time with the Defense Language Institute and and really become fascinated with the habits and rituals of the top performers in that world. So I have a slew of questions, but the one that I have been asked to ask you, Stan, more than perhaps any other is, why one meal a day? Do you actually eat one meal a day? I do.
1: Um, and people ask me why. Is it some Zen connection with something? And no. What happened was when uh, I was a lieutenant in special forces many, many years ago. I thought I was getting fat. <laughs> and I started running. And I uh, started running distance, which I enjoyed. But I also found that my personality was such that I'm not real good at eating three or four small disciplined meals. I'm better to defer gratification uh, and then eat one meal. And for me, that's dinner. And so what I do is I sort of push myself hard all day, try to get everything done, and then – and sort of reward myself with dinner at night. What time do you usually eat dinner? Well, whenever I'm finished work, and uh, it would be like eight or eight thirty. There's a challenge when you work really long hours because suddenly you start to eat very
0: late, and then you go directly to bed, and that that you feel like you're sleeping with a football in your stomach. <laughs> and do you drink uh, coffee earlier in the day? I'm just thinking with the workout and that many hours, a lot of people would would fade. How do you prevent yourself from fading? Yeah, I have a
1: tendency. I'll drink coffee. I'll drink other beverages too, water and and different things. And I do find that there are certain days your body just says eat and eat right now. And I used to keep a bin of those hard pretzels in my office in Afghanistan, and I'd grab a handful of those. And other times, I might be out doing something physical in the military, like road marching, and suddenly your body communicates, eat pretty quickly, or you won't keep road marching. And I'll I'll do that. But otherwise, uh,
0: I like to stick to the idea of of one a night. Got it. Yeah, this is uh, is a constant topic of conversation in the intermittent fasting worlds, and everyone has... Or Hoffmeckler has his thing. The paleo guys have have their thoughts. Obviously, are you, a, Chris? Are you a one meal a day kind of guy?
2: Well, when I was uh, working for then General McChrystal as his uh, aide de camp, his last year running the Joint Special Operations Command, it was sort of uh, by directive. There was no other choice. That was just the what we call the <laughs> battle rhythm of the organization. And when you know the old man got up to eat, that's you did it then, or you didn't do it at all. Um, so yeah, I've I've lived on that train. Um, but I, I would be the first to tell others because, um, as, as Dan alluded to, it sort of became the driver in the organization, but this is what we do. And, and I would tell people as his aide, he, he won't judge you if you eat breakfast. This is the way his metabolism works. He doesn't do this as a, as a demonstration of personal strength. This is just what works. So don't, don't think you're impressing him by not eating lunch or whatever. <laughs> um, but there was a the, the classic story around this when I first joined the in, inner circle staff, um we had this uh command sergeant major who i'll call jody uh a, a legend in the community he had been uh with stan for about three and a half years at that point and so i was asking him about the one meal a day thing and he he said uh when he showed up for the first year he's you know two feet from stan for the entire five years they worked together and he said well this is what this is what the boss does this is what i'll do so he did he did a a meal a day and he does not have a metabolism that, that drives toward it. And we lived in these little crummy sort of Quonset huts next to the, uh, where the headquarters Did was. Did you say it? Quonset huts? You no, know, just sort of wooden, wooden huts, you right. know, pretty Spartan living about 50 yards from where the headquarters was in Iraq. And, uh, Jody said about, uh, about a year into the tour, the general McChrystal calls him and says, Jody, get in here. So he runs over to him, What's up, sir. And he goes, and he, he said, I, I hadn't really looked through his hooch before. And he said, General McChrystal's pointing at these this little yeah. tin of pretzels he has, and he goes, "I think there's mice eating my pretzels." <laughs> and he, <laughs> Jody said. I almost whipped up my gun and shot him. And I said, you, you've been eating pretzels? I've been eating <laughs> one the DA day Dark secret. For a year, and you had pretzels in your room? <laughs> because, because it was the most unprofessional I've ever been with a federal officer. I just stormed out of the room. You know, low blood sugar will do
0: that. That was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Makes cowards of men. Long distance running and low blow sugar. Uh, so you mentioned uh, hooch. Now, I, so one of the challenges I think that civilians have, and probably where a lot of movies make a million and one mistakes is just with the terminology so let's start with hooch hooch is the where someone is living their quarters or
2: that's right yeah your sort of overseas quarters everybody can refer to as your as
0: your hooch got it so even if you're in a room with say 10 or 15 other people would your particular your bunk or whatever that would be considered your hooch
2: uh if you had a if you had a common birthing with 10, ten folks or so in, in the special operations community, we'd break into you know teams of four or so would share a common space, and that would be like that that fire team's hooch.
0: Got it. And so you spent uh, – feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm sure I will, I will uh, misuse terminology. But so you spent 15 years with the SEAL teams, with uh, development group, I guess which is known as DevGrew. Correct. Uh, and JSOC, and, I th- and what I'd love to talk about for a second, just to get everyone on the same page with vocabulary. Uh, could you explain to me how the uh, you know SOCOM or JSOC is is broken up? Like, what are the in- what are the groups within it? And uh, the reason I ask is I was sp- spending time in Monterey at the Defense Language Institute, and I remember before I got up to speak because we were doing Q and A and keynotes, and they said, "Whatever you do, do not refer to all the, the people serving." in the armed forces as soldiers. They're like, number one, they're not all soldiers. And I was like, okay, I need an education here. So could you perhaps explain what the people in the different branches like to be referred to as, and then uh, how JSOC is, what JSOC is comprised of?
2: Um, sure. Yeah. At the, at the, at the most macro level, you have, um, you know, the, the four stars in DC that run, run the military. And then you have each branch, the four army, star generals, the four star generals. And then you have the army, the Navy, the air force, the Marines, etc., And then, Underneath those, going back you know, a, a few uh, decades, there were special, special operations components of each one that, that developed. The Navy SEALs, back to Vietnam, the Green Berets, the Army Rangers, et cetera. And the Green
0: Berets were within which group?
2: Within the Army. Got it. Um, and so uh, you, you started to develop these highly specialized teams inside of each, each branch. And then uh, going back to, really, to the, uh, the failed rescue mission inside of Iran under the Carter administration— right. Um, there was something called the Holloway Commission that came out of that inside of Congress. And what they basically found out of that was even though we have these special operations units, we don't know how to work together in a, in a truly joint fashion. And so um, at that point, you had what evolved out of that. You have the Special Operations Command, which is a four-star command down Socom. In Tampa. SOCOM. Um, and then e- so each one of these special operations units created a, basically a dotted line relationship, both to their... To their parent service, so the SEALs report to the Navy, but they also report to SOCOM, which is a joint headquarters. And then also uh, off of that, off of SOCOM was created the Joint Special Operations Command, and the idea there was to JSOC. JSOC, and each out of each of these um, special operations units, they all have a sub component of. Uh, secondary uh, selection phase that people go through to get into, even a more elite, you know, like the Army Rangers, the development group, et cetera. And those all report on, up underneath the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC. And the history of, their, uh, of of that organization goes back, you know, to the early 80s. And that was a, um, a lot of our experiences post 9-11 were obviously centered in and around the evolution of JSOC, which uh, Stan commanded for five years from 2003 to 2008.
0: Got it. Thank you. And what does the, what does an ADC, that's aide de camp, do? What, what were your primary functions in working with Stan? And I think you guys, uh, let's see, this was for the last year that uh, that I guess, uh, correct me, that was the last year you were deployed, or not deployed, but in the field? In JSOC. In JSOC, right. right. right.
2: So Stan commanded that unit from 2003 to 2008. Um, I was inside the community at that point and then was brought up to be his uh, aide-de-camp for 2007, 2008. Um, and then he went on, obviously, came back to command all the forces in Afghanistan um, about, about a year or so later. Um, so the the role of an aide-de-camp, I mean, it goes back as far as there have been militaries. And um, it really varies from senior leader to senior leader on how they use their immediate staff. Uh, but my experiences there, I think, were, were, were pretty unique because uh, a few things that General McChrystal did differently was— uh, that he selected uh, people to be in his immediate staff. He had been down to a junior level, like I was sort of a mid-grade officer at that point, that sort of pained the the idea was you want to pain the units to pull out people with real experience um, to be on this immediate staff because uh, not that it made life easier for, for him, But he had developed such an understanding of how broad networks are really what was driving the organization that he wanted people that really came in with a knowledge of key players both inside our organization and then external units that you could connect with. Mm -hmm. So you became, if you had the right relationships, you became a force multiplier for how quickly the organization could move. Um, And the simplest way I could describe it, there was really my, on that immediate level of sort of um, being very involved with the day-to-day and week-to-week actions of of the commanding general – Uh, myself and one other uh, individual in the military, so even an executive officer and and an aide-de-camp. And the the way I always looked at it was, my job was to keep the commanding general's life as fluid as possible. So I thought of it like this. Never, Never touch a locked door, never wait for a an aircraft never, you know, never slow down the train. Removing
0: not, all the friction points.
2: That's right. Not to protect the individual, but because you realize we're moving so fast that every wasted minute of the senior leader, whether it was General McChrystal or if he got shot, whoever came in next, every wasted minute there is has real impacts on the battlefield. So your job was to, to create sort of a seamless, fluid approach to to the organization.
0: What were some of the ways that you reduced friction and sort of kept everything running smoothly?
2: I think the number one thing I learned was you have to have good relationships. Um, actually, Stan told me, I think probably day one of my in-brief, because uh, he, you know, he'd been running the organization for four years at that point, and the organization had a phenomenal relationship. And so I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you'll get whatever you want. You're very much at the front line of coordinating all the logistics for the movement of the commanding general. So you'll win pretty much every argument if it gets to that. You can do that as a, as a good person or a bad person. And the, the way that people observe or the opinions people have of the organization will be drawn in large part from their encounters with, with you, how you come across on email, how you come across on the phone, how you interact with their junior staffs. That many, many people walk away and ultimately think, I have a good or bad opinion of JSOC based on this this five-email exchange I had with this mid-grade officer. So you really have to protect that first and foremost. And if you do that well, everything else will work well behind it.
1: Can I have some observations? When I was a captain, I was a company commander in a mechanized infantry unit, and the division commander, the two-star general, uh, was a guy who later became pretty famous, and he was a pretty uh, forceful kind of guy. And he had an aide-de-camp, and he wanted me to be the new aide-de-camp. So he came to visit me in the field when we were in the desert, and he was standing in front of me. It was early morning on a battle position, and he's looking at me, and it was cold out, and he was talking to me. And I knew his aide-de-camp who was behind him, and he was standing there with a bag, and the general said, Captain McChrystal, you want some coffee? And I said, no, thanks. He says, how about some soup? I said, no, thanks. All my troops are around there, you're not going to take anything, you know, that your troops don't get – And then he said, I think I'm going to have some soup. And he didn't turn around. He just reached his hand back and held his open hand there. And as I'm watching, his aide had to open this bag, pull out the soup, put the cup in, pour soup in it. I was embarrassed for my peer. And then they're trying to convince me that I wanted to do this job. And, one, I swore to myself I'd never do that. Two, I swore to myself that I would never do that to people. And so when Chris became aide-de-camp, it was more like being a chief of staff. As Chris says – what he really, in my view, was he was the connection to the command. Uh, he was one of the connections, but probably the primary one. How I was viewed in many cases depended upon how he uh, coordinated with people. Right, and presented himself. And then also they would come to him for what does the old man think? Because there were times when I'm moving 100 miles an hour and they'd come. And so a couple things had to be true. One, he had to know how the old man think thought – and two, he had to be able to articulate that in a way that was mature and whatnot. So it's really an interesting job. And, and as Chris described, you pull somebody up who's very experienced, but you also pull someone up that's got great potential, who will benefit from this unique experience and visibility. And, and that's uh, – by this was – I think Chris was my fourth or fifth aide to camp during that tour
0: and by far the best. But also I'd learned. Of course. And I – I'm so interested in this aid de camp position partially because I'm trying to draw for myself parallels between military and civilian life, uh, particularly military, uh, elite units and fast growing startups that could change the world potentially. And, um, it, uh, the, the aide-de-camp position reminds me a bit of uh, an article I recently read called 10,000 Hours with Reed Hoffman, Reed Hoffman, chairman of LinkedIn. And his equivalent aide-de-camp was Ben Casanocca, very young guy, very high promise. And um, so I, I'm, I'm personally looking to, at some point soon, hire someone like uh, an aide-de-camp. So this is, this is all very, very self-interested. But uh, let me ask a couple of routine questions questions about routine uh and then i'd love to uh maybe go back in history a little bit Um, the working out do you work out every day i do what type of exercise and why When I was
1: younger and I got serious about working out, I was a second lieutenant. And as I mentioned, I started getting fat. And I had a first sergeant in my parachute infantry company that liked to run. So we would do loosening up exercises and then we'd run. And so I started running. And so for the first 20 or so years... I ran. I had a one period when I was a captain where I ran 15 miles a day, seven days a week, didn't vary, didn't take days off, wore lousy running shoes. It was sort of stereotypically all the mistakes you can make. <laughs> As I got older and I started to have a series of shoulder surgeries and back surgeries, predictably, uh, what I learned to do was to alternate, so I will run one day, I'll lift weight the next day I'll bike when a bike when I'm home and have that capable so I can round out. But for me, it's very important to do something literally every day I'll only take a day off when I'm forced to because I've got some weird schedule thing that makes it impossible and when you what does your weight training your resistance training workout look like yeah i I will start at my home, if, if we're at home, and I, I go down to my basic uh, basement and I do four sets of push-ups, uh, as many as I can do for four uh, sets, and I alternate that with a series of abs exercises. So I'll do, uh, starting with a set of sit-ups, and I'll do 100 sit-ups, and I'll flip over and I'll do three minutes of a plank, and then I'll do some yoga that I learned for about two or three minutes, then I'll do another set of push-ups. And then I'll go to my next abs thing, which is a, uh, a crunch-like uh, crossover. And then I'll do a two-and-a-half-minute plank. And then I'll do more yoga, slightly different. Then I'll do another set of push-ups. And then I'll do my third set, which is crossover uh, sit-ups. And I'll then do a third plank of two minutes. I'm decreasing each time. Uh, then I'll do some more yoga. And then I'll do my fourth set of push-ups. And then I'll do my fourth, which is a flutter kick, 60 flutter kicks, followed by static. Then I'll do my fourth plank, which is now a minute and a half. And then I'll come back. I've only do four sets of push-ups, so the last time I don't do push-ups, I then do uh, one more set of the crunch-like, and I'll flip over to my last plank, which is one minute. And then I'll do some final yoga. And that'll take me about 45 to 50 minutes. Then I'll leave my house and go to the gym. Because my gym opens at 5.30. It's three blocks from my house. I
0: assume we mean a.m.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I can do all this from 4.30. I get it, If I get up at 4, I can do all that from 4.30 to about 5.20, 5.25, go down to my gym. And then when I get to the gym, I do four sets of pull-ups, alternated with incline bench press, alternated with uh, standing curls. And then in that, I'll also do these one-legged things, balance exercises as the break between them uh, I was taught that was good for balance and whatnot, and I'll do a few other things in that, and I can do all that in 30, 35 minutes. So by six fifteen, six twenty, I can be done at the gym,
0: head back home, get cleaned up, and then be starting work. Ready to rock and roll. Yeah. And uh, what is the, why is exercise important to you? Uh, when you, both when you were overseas and at home, maybe the reasons differ, but why? why is it, why is that routine ritual important? I think it's several things.
1: Um, There's a certain uh, self-image. You know, I think that if I was uh, struggling with my weight or if I was not as fit as I wanted people to perceive me and I couldn't perceive myself that way, I think my own self-esteem would would suffer. And particularly over life now, whenever I'm injured and I have even a slight period, it, it bothers me a lot. So I think that's part of it. Second is the military. There's an expectation. If you are not a physical leader in the kind of organizations that Chris and I were in, if you can't do those things physically, you don't have to do it better than everybody else, but you have to do it credibly and they can look up to, then I think your uh, status in the organization is going to go down. I, when I was left Ranger Battalion Command in 1996 and I went off to spend a year at Harvard, and I remember one of my non-commissioned officers said, sir, what are you going to do at Harvard? I said, I'm going to study. He says, you're going to work out? And I said, yeah, presumably I will. And he goes, you know, you come back here with a Ph.D., But you're out of shape. We're going to have a word for you, and it ain't going to be doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was so good. It also puts a discipline in the day. Um, I find that if the day is terrible or whatever, but I worked out, at the end of the day, I'd go, well, I had a good workout. Almost no matter what happens, when when the Rolling Stone article came out, it came out about 1.30 in the morning. I found out about it. I made a couple calls. I knew we had a big problem and I went, put my clothes on and I ran for an hour, clear my head, stress myself,
0: didn't make it go away. But that was something that I do in those situations. Yeah. It's, um, for me, I try to it's, it's a way of diversifying my identity in a way so that if everything else is suffering, if I'm losing it, everything else for factors outside of my control, at least the dead, the bar doesn't care. (laughs) Uh, So Chris, I'd love to ask you, um, and then I'm going to come back to the Rangers uh, with Stan in a second, but if you could pick a handful of books, say two or three books for all West Point graduates to read before being deployed or going into combat situations, it doesn't have to be West Point, but given my limited knowledge of (laughs) where people come from before the military, let's just assume that's the case. What, What books would you assign to them? then they don't, they don't have to, mil- they don't have to be military related, but
2: yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the, the tendency is, um, to look for, you know, something written by a current platoon leader or, you know, some sort of geopolitical, here's the current state in, you know, our relationships with this country. I always encourage folks, um, if you're going to, you know, as we have multiple deployments through Afghanistan, Read uh, old English works, about, you know, from, from British soldiers that were on the frontier, you know, years ago. Um, read travel logs from people that were traveling through Afghanistan, in, you know, in peaceful times a century ago. Uh, go back into the history because I think one of the key variables in all of these current conflicts, at least, that we continually miss on um, as, a, as a nation and all the way down the individual level, I know I've been guilty of it, is really understanding the, um, the cultural context that we're seen through so i found over the over the years the best way to be able to uh, empathize with the locals on the ground is to try and you'll never you'll never be perfect it's it's nearly impossible but try to understand their view their their sense of history which frankly tends to be on a much longer time horizon than ours as uh, western leaders uh and try to see yourself in the in their timeline so take take Afghanistan as an example. Um, it's easy to look at Afghanistan that the country was you know, born into being on September 11th, 2001. Uh, in reality, we, we are a, a section in a very, very long and complex and, and proud history in Afghanistan that affects Pakistan and Pakistan affects India. So we, we have a little blip inside a very complicated timeline. And if you, if you show up thinking, okay, this is year four of the, this country's uh, relevance to the world— you're going to miss every time. You have to understand uh, the person on the ground when you're when you're, you know, going out at night, what are they seeing and what, what, what do they understand as the current situation. Um, it's really the only way i found it to, to be able to make some sort of connection with the reality of the situation.
0: And if you wanted to, there's so many misconceptions about the military and what it feels like to be, say, in combat. And I, I believe I've had a couple of books recommended to me. As a civilian, if I want to become... Have a better understanding of the realities of combat. I think there's a book called "On Combat" and "On Killing." There are a handful. Um, if you were, if you uh, had to give a, a book as a gift to someone to give them insight into the realities of combat, do any come to mind?
2: Uh, well, a classic in the um, in the special operations community is "Gates of Fire" by Stephen Pressfield. Mm-hmm. Um, really highly read. I think it's a great work, um, and it speaks to uh, sort of the The bond that exists inside of you know that's about the the Spartan three hundred that stood the gates of Thermopylae versus the Persians, Um, and it's it's aggrandized, of course, but it really makes um, sort of a a cultural statement about what it's what it's like to be part of that level of an organization. Uh, Literally, the people are going to lock arms and and know what they're facing together, but they're doing it for a higher purpose. and And it also makes an important. uh, I think what Pressfield does masterfully is talks about the culture that supports that, and so it was one of the uh, probably the only book. In that genre, that I that I constantly recommend to wives as well, because I think Pressfield wisely gives as much credit to the to the women of Sparta as he does to the to the soldiers that went forward, making the case that this wouldn't exist without a a, a home network that made it possible in the first place. And uh, I think one of the greatest strengths of the the JSOC community, for sure, is the the women at home that raise the kids, take care of the family, and, and live through years and years and years of deployments um, in a very, very honorable way. So I think that's top of the list. Great. Thank you. Stan, what,
0: what book or books have you gifted the most to other people?
1: I have probably given the most copies of a book written in 1968 by Anton Myrer called Once an Eagle. And for a period of – it's a story of two characters, both who entered the military right during the First World War. And it follows them up through the Second World War and, in fact, into the post-war years. And it's – on the one level, it's a little simplistic. There's one who is wealthy and ambitious and and somewhat uh, unscrupulous and the other who is a Nebraska farm boy who wins the Medal of Honor and thrifty, brave, clean, reverent, et cetera. But it's actually more complex than that because it takes them through a whole career with all the nuances of Army life, the the difficulties of peacetime service, slow promotions, and then the the challenges of war and their personal side as well. And I gave that to a tremendous number of young officers and NCOs with whom I served because I thought it was a good window to them that – the military seems like the day you're living, but it's really a life. It's a career and, and it's going to have an arc and it's going to have ups and downs and left and rights, just like your personal life is. And so I found that really valuable.
0: Thank you. Uh, so I want to talk about West point for a second. Uh, I think there's a fascination with West point names. Easy to remember conjures a lot of images for people, cadets in uniform, et cetera. uh, I was hoping if you could explain what, uh, and this is this is from reading your memoir, what slugs are and what area tours are. Sure.
1: Uh, West Point was designed to produce officers and gentlemen. And it was designed to be very disciplined. And so early in its process, it, it decided that it was going to have to have ways to discipline cadets for infractions. Some of which were pretty humorous, some of which were you know, worthy of great story, slug became the slang term for a disciplinary punishment that you received. So you would do something wrong and a slug would be a a set of typically three things. You'd get a certain number of demerits. You'd get a certain number of punishment tours walking the area. And I'll describe that. And the last part would be confinement when I was a cadet, they had something called special confinement where it was 24 hours a day unless you were in class or in uh, the mess hall or something. You literally were on lockdown. So it's a like solitary confinement. It, it's very much. In fact, it was declared unconstitutional while I was a uh, sophomore and I was under special confinement when it was so it was quite a <laughs> quite a liberating thing and then the punishment tours were funny because you get in a dress uniform and you walk back and forth across a concrete uh, apron or open area and my father explained to me that typical punishment might be go clean latrines or something but they didn't think that was appropriate for officers future officers so they said we're going to have them do something that's not flogging or or anything but it's absolutely useless. So you go out and you spend typically three hours at a shot walking back and forth. It's, I mean, it's tiring, but it's not physically painful. But it's an utter waste of time. The one thing you don't have at West Point is any spare time. And so what they do is they take away your spare time with no sense of accomplishment. You don't even cut the grass. You can't even look and say, well, the grass is better. Um, Nobody benefited from it. You just paid. And you would be in uniform. Would you carry a, a weapon? Or? You carry an M14 that we use for parades and whatnot. And so as you walk back and forth, you just it's on right shoulder arm and then left shoulder
0: arm and back and forth. So the, the reason I bring this up, of course, and uh, I feel like everybody should read your memoir, and we'll talk about the, the uh, your newest book as well. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble in school personally. Uh, I was at the bad table starting in kindergarten and pretty much progressed at the bat table throughout the rest of my K through 12 career, as it were, uh, you did, uh, I believe in your first year, 127 hours of area tours, 128, 128. And right. Who's counting? <laughs> so, right. Who's counting? So I'm curious if you noticed any correlation between those types of infractions and later high ranking officers or people who were, um, uh, recognized as outstanding later, or was that is that not the case do you is, is that kind of mischief a common component, or is it is it not yeah at West Point, um, doing the tours was not
1: always a uh, correlating factor because I would tell you a lot of guys just didn 't get caught i wasn't i couldn 't be a criminal now because i 'm just not lucky enough, so I had a lot of guys who were doing what I did, but didn 't get caught. I would say that there 's a higher correlation between people who know how to live life than there is between high academic performance at West Point or a perfect disciplinary record and success in the Army. The guys who really turned out to be good soldiers that I worked with from my, my peer group at West Point tended not to be at the top of the class, tended not to have perfect, pristine records at West Point, but they tended to have high peer ratings. We did peer ratings religiously. And so other people would look at them and say, you know, so-and-so gets in a lot of trouble, but he lives life. And... That's the kind of person we think is going to do well. What were the
0: the peer review uh, mention in the book was fascinating to me, and I want to dig into that a little bit. What were the peer reviews? like? What were the questions or rankings, uh, if you could elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, it wasn't questions. In fact, what it was,
1: was you ranked people in your company of, you know, there would be Plebes in a company was about 30. By the time you graduated, it was typically cold down by people even to 18 or 19. But every at least twice a year, you did peer ratings, and you would rank one to the bottom. The people at the bottom, if it was correlated across a bunch of people, would have peer rating problems, and they would be looked at for release from the academy. You could also reach out across the org- across the core if you wanted to mention somebody very positively or very negatively and they were called blue darts and so if you knew me from another company and you thought i was a bad cadet you could write one of these optional blue darts and just say he's a bad guy or if you thought good you could do the positive but the peer ratings were interesting because the first thing you think is hey these are going to be popularity contests without much validity they actually didn't turn out that way. People tended to take them very seriously. And the correlation during my period with actual success later was, was very, very high. It was higher than anything else at the academy. Wow. Uh,
0: yeah, these types of assessments are very interesting to me. Um, there was a, There is a book called Mental Toughness Training for Sports. And I remember in high school – uh, I was a wrestler, and I they, they provided an assessment that you could provide to your peers to evaluate you on a, on a, on a, a roster of maybe 20 points. It was one of the most uh, valuable things I did in my entire high school career. Uh, so speaking of vetting and assessing people... Uh, so I have heard stories of you're vetting people for the McChrystal group, and I've heard that you sometimes throw a statement out there that people need to finish. So feel free to correct me here also. So specifically, let's say you're interviewing Chris and you said, everyone says Chris is great, but, and then you just sit there in silence. Do you do, you do that? Is that one of your, your questions or statements rather? I do do that. And why, well, could you explain why you do that?
1: Um It puts a person in the position of having to try to articulate what they think the perception of them by others is. Because there's a perception, and often in the the vetting process, we'll figure that out because we'll get inputs from other people. But if you ask somebody and you said, everybody loves you, but they don't love this about you, or they'd hire you, but it forces them. It's a couple of things. One, it forces them to come to grips with, what is it people don't love about me? And the second is, they've got to say it to you. Um, it could be very common knowledge, but they don't know, if they don't have the courage to face up to it and tell somebody who's thinking about hiring them,
0: that's a that's a window into personality, I think. And um, what are the answers that are a red flag to you, and what are the answers that are not a red flag?
2: Hmm. I, I, or, or Chris, I, I, yeah, if you yeah, want can, to tackle that, I can that. offer um, the some thoughts from the from the SEAL community. So you, you know, um there's there's various gates as you advance into these different units during your career where you're you know you're going through up in front of a board as the next interview the next interview, um, and so as you get, once you're senior enough you're the you're the you're the person sitting on the on the board right, and so I would always uh, like to throw in some version of this question and basically the way I would phrase it is we're a, we're a small community, the typical way of asking this question is you know there's ten people outside why are you the best one, and I I always like to flip that on its head we're a small community you and I haven't worked together, but. I know a lot of your peers and you know, we're going to follow up with people that like you and don't like you after, after this. What are the people that, and no one's perfect. I have, I have my naysayers just like you do. What, what were the people that don't hold you in highest regard? What will they say about you? And to me, the most important thing was that they have an answer. Um, A, it shows the courage to be able to address it. And B, it shows self-awareness that I, I might be top peer rated and have this great career, but there's somebody out there and here's what they'd probably say. They'd say, I'm, I was self-serving that one time, or um, I, I appear too good on paper, or I'm lazy on uh, you know on these types of you know physical training. Whatever the case may be, have some awareness of what your, your naysayers and, and show me that if you identify it you're working on it. I don't care what you think about it. I just want to know that you're aware of how other people view you.
0: And what are the, let's say that's for, uh, I would love for you to explain what uh, development group is dev grew, another one that's thrown around a lot. And, um, I, I included, don't know exactly what that refers to, but if you were vetting someone in that fashion, what are the excusable sins, uh, the kind of passable sins versus the disqualifying sins?
2: Yeah, that's a good, a good question. Um, like anything inside the uh, joint special operations community, um, and it does it gets into classified space there pretty pretty quickly. Oh but, yeah, uh, I mean you, obviously yeah, whatever yeah. you can talk about. You, your the, all these units are basically um, you're you're looking for folks that have a really uh, strong track record inside whatever branch of the special operations whether they've been in the green berets or the army rangers or the, or the SEAL teams. And then they have an opportunity to, to screen again and go through a, an additional sort of selection phase process to get into one of these units that works underneath, uh, JSOC. And so, um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you're, you're starting with the same selection pool and for people to even be considered for these units, they, they have a, no one, no one's going to have a bad track record and show up and try to get get in the door. I think one of the big um, delineators, and I can I can speak to my community because each one of them have their own sort of tribal personalities. personalities. Right. Uh, but definitely inside the the SEAL teams, um, you know, the world has shifted to this really decentralized. You have to be able to move fast on the edges of the of the organization with a lot of autonomy, and you're you're put in situations where you have to think fast. Um, and and re- really, literally, sometimes with geopolitical implications of the choice you make, and so you're looking for people with high levels of uh, of integrity around the decisions they're going to make and how they'll report them out, um, and then comfort in that environment, which which to me says, do you, do you have the intellectual curiosity to want to be in at that sort of tip of the spear? And not everyone has that. And what I would often tell guys being in or out of one of those units is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It you're, you're best served by understanding the role of those types of organizations and making sure it aligns with your personality. Otherwise you're just going to, um, you'll be unhappy being part of it.
0: Then I would imagine you probably endanger yourself and other people potentially if you're not a good fit. Uh, so Stan, I'd love to, uh, talk about just just uh for a second and then i have some kind of hypothetical questions and i'm gonna get this name incorrect i'm sure but major barato is that right i'd love for you to just talk about your experience with major barato i think it was your first meeting but uh if you if you could talk about that a bit i think it's uh Seems to be a key turning point for you.
1: Yeah, it it really was. Um, Several things happened. I had entered West Point and I was from an Army family and I had expectations of myself. But my first two years at West Point were difficult. I got in a lot of trouble for discipline and my own immaturity. Um, I didn't do well academically because I didn't know how to study and I didn't study very hard. I really didn't take West Point very seriously. And and it was also heavy on math and, and uh, sciences, and so that was not my strong suit. So by the end of my uh, sophomore year, I, was, I, I wasn't I was ready to quit, but I was having a crisis of confidence. I had gone through some things. I had applied to go to ranger school as a cadet, which they let a small number each year. And in the spring of... Uh, my sophomore year for that summer, they said, you can't because your record is your lack of discipline is bad enough. You can't go to ranger school. And I was really crushed. And uh, so I, I went that summer and I went off to, to training and whatnot. They send you around the army to do different things. And I came back that fall and we had changed tactical officers. Now, I'd had a nice tactical officer the first two years, but I, but I don't really think, I mean, he tolerated
0: my two years of problems. And
1: is a tactical officer like
0: a residential advisor in college or something along those lines? A little
1: like that. You have a commissioned officer, a captain, or a major for each company, which has about 120 cadets in it. And they don't live in the company. They're not there every day, but they are responsible for the company. So they have an office a couple hundred meters away, and they're responsible for overseeing the cadet chain of command on discipline, and they'll come down and inspect things. And they're also mentors and, and whatnot. And so, after the first couple of years, I came back and I expected to have this new tactical officer, my first, you know, in briefing and counseling. He brings each person in together. I expected him to look at my record and then give me the riot act for you know all my problems and shortcomings and whatnot. And I sat down with him, and he had been—he's a special forces officer—and uh, he sat down and he goes, "Well, I'm looking at your record here," and he says, "I think you're going to be a great cadet and a great army officer." And I literally said, you, 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 I think you got the files <laughs> misplaced because this is Stan McChrystal. And he said, no, no, I got it. He goes, uh, I'm looking at you. You know, you've you've gone outside the boundaries a couple times. He said, but your peer ratings are really good. My peers were, were uh, reflecting confidence and whatnot. He says, I think you're going to do great. And it was amazing. It was transformational because – sort of like that kid in elementary school where suddenly they start to say, you do have high potential. We just got to pull this out. And I had also started seriously dating, now my wife of 38 years, dating her then. So after my first two years of um, my misspent youth, I'd say, I suddenly was dating someone seriously. So I had this taku believed with me I was going to settle down more because I was dating one person. And um, I could sort of see the end and for me west point was this dark tunnel you went into just to go be an army officer if it could have been done in a weekend i'd have been happy to do that i didn't bask in the west point experience um i just wanted to be an army officer and west point seemed like the best place to do it and suddenly i could see it was two years out but i could see the reality of it here was a special forces combat veteran who was telling me he thought i'd be good for that world and uh what effect did that have on you? Well, I think it, it caused me, one, you don't want to let somebody down who's got faith in you. If somebody doesn't have faith in you and they say, I think you're a screw-up, you go, well, okay, if I screw up. But, you know. but if somebody says, no, I really have trust in you, I trust you're going to do really well, it, it gives you a new sense of loyalty to someone. You don't want to let them down. Plus, he's now put on the table in front of everybody. You can do this. It's up to you. He didn't say it that way, but it was clear that's what he'd done. So um it it changed my opinion for lots of reasons. This being one of them, my, my grade point average skyrocketed my last two years, and I finished on the dean's list and all, which was for me nosebleed territory. Um and but it was a lot because of the way people around me just started shaping my
0: expectations. So the 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 question of selection and training is really fascinating to me. I mean, for for all of these different stages in a military career or a, a sort of private sector career, uh, if you had, and this is, this may be a difficult question, but if you had say a hundred athletes, civilian athletes, and I say athletes just to take the physical component largely out of it. Um, and uh, th- this question came from reading about the nine week ranger course at uh, Fort Benning, I guess. So if you had a hundred athletes and had eight weeks to train 20 of them for combat. How would you select them, and how would you train them? Very very interesting. And and just as an aside,
1: the young man, the Yale graduate, who worked with me on the memoirs you read, is in his final week of ranger school now. (laughs) Well, good luck So he's lost a boatload of weight, and he comes out, and he's a uh, specialist in 2nd Ranger Battalion. So... Um, He read about it, studied it, and now made the decision to go do it. It will be interesting to hear him after he comes out. Uh, If I was going to prepare people for combat, if you assume that they can do the basic skills, they can shoot a weapon, they can do first aid, they can do those things. If they can't do those, obviously you've got to teach them the the things that uh, are absolutely required. But if you assume that most people come out of basic training – and initial training with those technical skills, I'd spend times on things that do two things. The first would be to push themselves. After World War II, when they talked to organizations that had then been through combat, they said, what of your training was of value and what was of less value? They said long foot marches that forced them physically and really caused them to reach down inside themselves like distance running was invaluable. And the second was live fire training on courses that was as realistic as it could be. There was the stress, there was the sense of danger, although they were set up to to inherently be safe. Uh, That required it. To that, I would add uh, dealing with uncertainty. I would try to put people in cases where they have to make decisions with absolutely incomplete knowledge, and they have got to live with the results of that, and often it'll be bad, and what do they do then?
0: How do you simulate, oh, actually, this brings up perhaps red teaming? Perhaps, maybe, maybe not. But how do you simulate, we'll come back to that if I'm if I'm leading us in a weird direction, but how do you simulate that uncertainty or or role play that uncertainty? Are there good ways to do that? There were a number of ways to do that, to make tough decisions and whatnot. I, I
1: had a, when I was a regimental commander, a colonel of the range regiment, we did a uh, put together an exercise that was designed to test them with uncertainty, but also with a no-win decision. And so what we did was we, we went to a battalion on no notice, and we alerted them, and we took a company of rangers, put them on airplanes, and flew them to Texas and then did a parachute assault. And their mission was to then move from the drop zone to this town and rescue a bunch of Americans who were there working nonprofits and whatnot. And they were then to police them up, bring them out to an airfield, and and be extracted. Pretty straightforward. And so they parachute in, and as they move toward this town, they're told that there are a small number of enemy forces there, 10 or so, enough they can deal with, and they develop a plan and they deal with it. Once they got into that firefight, I, in fact, reinforced that enemy with about 100. And so suddenly what happened is they get in a firefight that they can't extract from, and very quickly they have... Wounded of their own. And so now they're in this situation, and I'm playing higher headquarters. I'm actually on the ground watching, but I, through, the, through the, uh, my uh, controllers, I'm playing higher headquarters. And I say, all right, your mission is to get those students out of there, get them out, and get them to the airfield. And they go, wait a minute, I've got 40 wounded. I can't move my wounded. I can't get them, and I'm not going to leave them. And I said, wait, we sent you for the students. Get them. And so they always try to work around. They try to say, I need more aircraft. I need more forces. They, something to to take away the constraint. And, of course, you say, nope, 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 won't happen. You're going to have to make the decision. You are going to pull these students out and accomplish your mission at the cost of breaking faith with your comrades. Or you're going to stay there, in which case you're probably all going to get killed and the students are not going to be rescued so you're going to be a failure, and we would do this, and it was a fascinating situation because you saw this moral dilemma on top of all the tactical dilemmas, and then afterward we would have these long uh,
0: after-action reviews where we talked about it, and that the fun thing is there was no right answer. And what are you looking for? This no, I, I, I'm really loving this example. What what are you hoping them to exhibit, or what are you looking for in that a scenario like that?
1: Yeah, I. It's hard to say. The first thing I would say is you want them to be thoughtful. The the first response from people was, okay, the Ranger Creed says I'll never leave a fallen comrade, so I'm not leaving a fallen comrade. We're staying here period. And then you say, "Wait a minute. The president of the United States sent you to rescue those American citizens. If we fail, yeah, if we f- fail, then what's going to happen is We are going to have the loss of Americans, and we're going to have this embarrassment and all of these things. So the nation that is relying on you, you're going to let down. So what's more important, your personal promise or the promise to the nation and your mission and whatnot? And it was this quandary that you're looking for them to be more thoughtful than just this automatic black and white, reflexive, this is what we do because that's what we do. Uh, interestingly, I didn't have any of the companies leave the wounded. Uh, I'm not sure that wasn't the right answer and I couldn't tell them afterward that it was, but none of them left them, but they agonized over it. I mean, they tried everything they could, but, uh, it was just good because I said, those are the situations you're going to be in. It's never going to be easy this or that.
0: That's a great example. Uh, it's Chris. I would love to chat with you about your decision to leave the military. Uh, so I, I believe it was after 15 and a half years, about four years from retirement. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So what, that seems like a strange decision perhaps from the, from the perspective of someone looking at the incentives in the military. Why did you choose to leave the military?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the, so you can, you can retire officially at 20. So that's sort of a logical mark. Um, and, you know answers like that are never never simple but for for me some of the some of the big drivers probably the the, the biggest one that was staring me in the face was you know we'd we 'd been through this amazing transformation inside of the special operations community specifically in, inside of of jsoc and when I left um, my aide camp position with, with Stan, I went out to to monterey california and and did my uh, master 's thesis in intelligence fusion cells of all things, which is sort of counterintelligence. intelligence. What was the last part? intelligence fusion cells, which we okay. were these, um, if you, if you think of, uh, of our, the JSOC organization as sort of a, a global organic thing, this was the, n- the nerve center where all the information was passed around on a 24-7 cycle around the globe. And if you removed that, you would have had incredible forces uh, arrayed around the battlefield, but really not knowing what they should be doing with great specificity. So these specificity. fusion cells
0: were within these different groups under JSOC.
2: That's right. It was a global network, and they ranged from quite large ones in a place like Baghdad to maybe uh, you know, very small ones in other parts of the world. Okay. And the idea was, so the mantra of, of, of the organization became, it takes a network to defeat a network. Once we realized Al-Qaeda is obviously this globally distributed network of ideas more than anything. So we have to overlay that and be able to pass information as quickly as they're able to. And then we can get the right forces out uh, quick enough to, to address the problem. Being a kinetic sort of focused organization, the the initial mindset was all around the uh, going out in the field, onto the objective, um, and that... that was always done very well and it got better and better and still continues to get better today. What was missing was the right information getting to the folks that are actually going out on missions quick enough. And so um, I sort of had a sense of this shift as I was coming up through the ranks, but then spending a year um, watching Stan and the other senior staff, I realized this is the heartbeat of the organization is what we've really revolutionized here is information flow inside of a, a traditional bureaucracy. We've we've created this massively distributed network that shares information as fast as something like ISIS or Al-Qaeda that uses YouTube and email. And it's just totally uh, unconstrained in how it passes uh, its ide- ideology. And so went on to study that and got really uh, deeply fascinated with that that part of it. And then the decision to get out a few years later was was in large part driven by this. Um, my own personal belief that this is arguably the most important thing I'll, I will have learned, at least to this point in my life. And I think I personally thought I could better serve these ideas on the outside, really trying to just, because you can't, you can't take time like this in the military, to really study them and, and think about oh, what is the cross-functional application in other spaces.
0: What was the time sensitivity? In other words, why not wait four years Retire and then do the masters
2: um, you know a lot of that becomes sort of personal variables as well, like where you are with your your, your wife, have two kids et cetera um, sure. but in in large part, it was driven by the idea that um, this is th- the time is is now I, I felt like the ideas are really starting to awaken in other spaces, and so it 's sort of like um, i don 't know deciding to move to Silicon Valley in the early days sure. when you realize. There's something going on there, and I want, to be, I want to be part of it. For me, that was a big thing. This is, this is, a, this is a massive shift that everyone's going through, is how, how do we transition 20th century organizational models to be able to compete in the information age? And I, I, f- I could feel the, the conversation starting 2008, 2009, right. and started to trickle out, so I wanted to be part of it. Stan,
0: uh, so, so there's some timeless principles, timeless practices. Obviously, things have evolved in many different ways in the, in the military, private sector technology and so on. Uh, but if we're looking sort of in the, in the rearview mirror, uh, what military leaders come to mind, uh, who are most underrated in your opinion? That's a great question because,
1: uh, there are people who did things for which they get huge credit. And then there are other people who change the direction of, of organizations and, of course I think Ulysses S Grant is often underrated. He's he's viewed as this mechanical basher who is going to just bash the enemy into submission. And I think he was much more than that. I think he took a an army that was already maturing when he took overall command of Union forces, but he understood the absolute truth that you had to destroy the army of the South. You capturing richmond was interesting but it wasn't the real point the problem was as long as you had an existing army and that that was going to take a very focused effort that was going to be high cost and you weren't going to lower the cost by doing it more slowly it was cumulatively had to get it done and i think he understood the political side of it much more than people give him credit for so i think he's a huge one there's another and i'm gonna you know uh i'm embarrassed to say i can't remember his name there was a naval admiral between the First and Second World War, who essentially championed the development of aircraft carriers. There were people who championed the development of air power, and that was pretty obvious. But building aircraft carriers during that period when battleships were still king was a a dangerous sort of step out there. So I think those people who push change when change is not
0: otherwise automatically going to happen. And uh, for those people listening, I'm sure somebody listening or reading on the blog will, will have the answer, be able to look up that Naval Admiral. Uh, admiral. So please put them in the comments on, uh, on the blog, and then I will put it into the post. So we'll have that. Uh, Stan, do you listen to audiobooks when you work out? Uh, All the time. Um, It's funny.
1: I first used to listen to music, and I get bored listening to music. So I started listening to audiobooks because if you think about time management, what I found was I love to read. But particularly when we started the fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, I would have a long day. I'd have good books. I'd go back to my hooch and I'd read about a page and a half and then I'd wake up 20 minutes later with my head on the on the page. And so I realized I was going to have to get a better way. So I started putting audio books on my iPod and I like history and I like biography. And so I would put those on very eclectically and initially it was eclectic because – audiobooks weren't that prevalent. And so my wife would go to the library. She'd go everywhere she could, get all these audiobooks. I'd download them onto my iPod and then uh, on my computer and then put them on my iPod. And so it was whatever was available. Uh, Later, as more things became available, I I had a wider choice. But I found that eclectic part really good. I learned to run with audiobooks. My mind will stay collected on it when I would lift weights. And I also, just because I get sort of fanatical about something i have a little set of speakers in my bathroom so what i do is i go in in the morning and i'm listening to one book there i turn it on and while i brush my teeth while i shave while i put my pt clothes on because my wife's out in the bedroom um i'll listen to this book and then i'll walk out of there to go work out and i'll have my ipod i have another book and i listen to that to when i work out now it will take me quite a while of shaving time to get through a book. Are those two separate books or the same book? Two separate books. I so I just finished a book on uh, the South African gold and diamond trade, Cecil Rhodes and, and whatnot. And the Boer, up through the Boer War, it was fascinating and it probably took me, you know, six, eight weeks of shaving time to, to do that. But then on these other books, I found that I go through books very, very quickly because when you're lit, if you're working out an hour, hour and a half a day, you're, you actually go through books much faster
0: than I would if I just had reading, had reading time. And uh, I always love to ask people who read a lot or consume many books, even in audio format, how do you choose your books? So for instance, in this case of the the, the diamond trade and whatnot in South Africa, why did you choose that book? Yeah. Um, I went on, I go on audible.com and I buy this
1: package deal where you get a whole bunch of credits and uh, I look at the history first and I look at what's trending new just to see if what's trending new. I tend to like uh, sweeping history stories of an era that's, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, or big projects like the building of the Panama Canal, building of the Boulder Dam, because they got a beginning, middle and an end and challenges or biographies. And I will also do binge reading, meaning I went through a period where I read about say or whaling, and I read like five whaling books together, or I'll read Biographies or something about the founding fathers. And I did seven or eight George Washington and other founding fathers. And because they're all, you know, mutually overlapping, it's very interesting because suddenly you know more about the era and the new one is more interesting because it's filling in holes. And so I'll binge on one subject for a while. And then on another subject,
0: uh, Oh God, this gives me all sorts of ideas for how I can spend yet more time reading books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, chris now you uh you also listen to audiobooks
2: i do yeah i, I got into the habit um during multiple deployments because uh to, to to stan's point you just don't have have time during your day um and and you you want to continue reading right so you so i got into two real habits when it came came to working out from from deploying overseas one being um treadmill running which uh Stan was an adamant out, outdoor, outdoor runner would run around the airfield and places like Iraq and 120 degree heat. And, uh, I didn't like that for multiple reasons. Um, one, cause you'd always get yelled at for wearing headphones by the, by the base guards. And, and three star general could ignore that. I, I would I'd, I'd get more trouble, I guess. I with. Uh, so I, I got hooked on running on treadmills, which is where st- I still do probably 80% of my miles on treadmills. And the other was, was listening to audiobooks. And at first, it's, a, it's, it's really interesting. It takes your mind a while to shift off sort of the music and the, and the rhythm to keep you going. And you can keep two sides of your brain awake when you're running. Um, at first, I could only do it on long, slow, easy runs. But now I can do it on, on, with them doing, you know, fast-paced sort of tempo training runs all the way to lifting weights and doing a CrossFit-type workout. Um, once, you, once your brain becomes comfortable with it, you, you can really um, do it in any sort of physical activity.
0: What, uh, what books, and they don't have to be audio, but what books have helped you the most in taking the strengths and learnings from your career in the military and applying it to the private sector? Or what books about just private sector business have uh, had the most had an impact on you?
2: I think um, I'm a big Walter Isaacson fan. Um, I thought uh, Steve Jobs, well, you know, the Jobs book was was amazing. Um, really did a good job of um, you know capturing the way that an innovation. Leader's mind works, especially at that time in that space. Uh, and I'm currently listening to the Innovators, which I think makes some great points, and not just about that era, but sort of the history of how great ideas evolve. That one's uh, probably in the last 18 months or so of all the books I've I've read. The one that really parallels a lot of the experiences we had inside the inside the our community in the military, which was this realization that um, this is only going to be accomplished through connection of uh, the networks, so you have to create the synapses inside the organization if you 're really going to be able to share the learnings fast enough to get ahead of the problem and i think that 's one of the, you know, the overarching thesis that um that uh, Asikson's making in The Innovators is history is not linear. It's a complex you know, uh, gathering and breaking up of, of networks and, the, and the, the right ideas get sh- shared at the right time uh, in the right space with the right people and then, and then something amazing comes out of it. And history wants to tell the story about the person, but when you break it down, it's actually much more complex than that. Same thing we experience.
0: Much more nuanced. His biography of uh, Franklin is also outstanding, especially the first sort of half to three quarters for me. Uh, added a lot of uh, depth to someone that you can view as the guy with the glasses with the kite and the key, but there's a lot more That's to right. it. That's right. uh, Stan, uh, you're known for going out on operations with operators you know, as a three-star general um, uh, at the time. Why? Why would you do that? And what did you learn from it?
1: Yeah, I, I think all commanders go out on operations. What was different about me is I, as I got more senior, the kind of organization I was in, it made sense for me to go out. And so when I had Joint Special Operations Command... For me and Chris would go, you know, we'd go together, for us to go on a 20-person raid suddenly made sense because that's the size of operations we did. Another commander might go with a brigade of several thousand people doing something, but we'd go with 20 because that's how we operated. It It's very good on a number of reasons, levels. Uh, One level is you have to share danger with the people that you operate with. You don't have to do it every day. You don't have to be the strongest or the bravest or kick open the door, but just being willing to go out there does send a message to them that that you are willing to put it on the line with them. The second is you can have operations described to you. They can give you absolutely factual reports about what they did and, and the way they did it, but you don't know until you go out there. You don't understand the conditions under which they're operating, the frustrations, the nuances. Uh, and so going out there, every time you do, you come back and you go, wow, I had no appreciation for what they're doing. We, when I was commanding in Afghanistan, I, I had a sergeant write me an, an email that says, I don't think you understand what's going on out here. And at first I took a because I spent a lot of time on it. I said, okay. And the next day we flew out and went on a patrol with a squad in his platoon. And we went into this area in which it was vineyards. But in America, we'd have vineyards with wooden or metal trellises. They don't have wood or metal in Afghanistan, so they use mud. So the mud walls are about six feet tall. And they're about three and a half feet apart. So it's like being shrunk down and being put into your corduroy trousers. And you are walking, and suddenly you go, holy – it's acres and acres and acres. So it's just a labyrinth. It's a labyrinth. And the enemy, if you think about it, all they got to do is be at the corner, turn, shoot down there, and there's nowhere to go, or place improvised explosive devices, landmines, and whatnot, in the walls of this, which, of course, they did all the time. So – We went down and I went on this patrol with them and there's no way they could have described it. But when I went on it and they said, sir, we see about 50 feet in front of us, 50 feet behind and about a foot and a half left and right. What are we doing here? What are we accomplishing? And you you go down and do that. You send a signal, but you also walk back with a much better understanding and appreciation and nobody can describe it to you. So there's a certain uh, just importance. And, And then I think also if you don't, Put yourself
0: through that now and again. You can forget who you are. Yeah. You become, become detached from the realities. I, I the think so. And the... Um, so you I,
2: Yeah, Can please. I offer... A, sure. and there's a lot of anecdotes around that, not, not just from uh, what Stan was doing, but like as he said, other leaders did this. But um, one thing, one anecdote that, that jumps to mind, um, I think the, the point being made around what it does for the organization... Um, there were there were times when I was on the tactical level where he 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 would come out and go with us, which was always always interesting and fun for the for the crew. But when I was his um, aide camp, there was a one of a coalition partners, um, one of their. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so so a non-U.S. force that we were, that we had pulled inside of our organization. So we had you know other other counterterrorism organizations from around the world in the coalition that would work closely inside of us, and and one of our coalition partners. Um, one of their helicopters they had their own helicopter assets um had had gone down in on on a mission and they'd lost some of their operators as a result um and the the US uh special operations rotary wing assets are the the best the world's ever known and uh the the coalition helicopter pilots went through this phase of feeling you could see it in their force whether they really were ready to be at this this level of the game which we all believe they were and and just bad things happen in, in the confusion of the battlefield but they went through a stand down and and you could see there was a lot of questioning around um the, the role they should be playing internally they
0: went through a stand down meaning they they started second guessing or uh declining going well out and-
2: they just their their leadership made a conscious decision let's stand down the force for the next 72 hours or so and really deconstruct what just happened got it and uh, you know the the cons if you're in a unit like that the concern is now everybody's looking at you like you're you're not ready to be part of the team that was not what was going on but you could tell that was probably what they were thinking and uh i remember that general McChrystal came to me and said you know because he's got a lot of stuff on his plate so keep an eye on that the first time they're up in the air to go out on a mission we're going out with them and I said okay, that's 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 great, and sure enough, you know, three or four days later, they're they're back up, rotors are spinning, and we grab our gear and run out and go out on an op with them, and didn't make a big deal out of it, didn't even tell them really ahead of time, except an hour before, hey, we're going uh, the old man wants to hop out and go on this op with you, and it sent such a, a message to the entire uh, coalition partnership, especially the helicopter partner, the, the helicopter pilots, to say. We are, we're going through this period of self-doubt. This is a, a massively you know, chaotic environment anyway. He knows exactly what we just wrestled with for the last three days, and he's going to throw on his gear and hop on the bird and go out with us. Um, and it, was, it, it put the bet, the issue to bed immediately for the entire task force. Uh, and it spreads like wildfire, obviously, which is just a great way for senior leaders to to get really engaged in the trenches. So
0: Stan, I was going to ask, this just reminded me, you mentioned bird. So the word bird shows up first in your memoir at the very beginning. Uh, and uh, I wanted to ask you about a decision that one of, uh, I want to say the operators with you, I'm just going to use that word because I don't know a better word, said he was, I think, uh, wildly unenthusiastic about it. I'm not sure what the phrasing was, but the, the, the choice not to wear body armor. Why did you, I'm not sure if that was, I, I apologize if this was explained later in the book. Why, why did you choose not to wear body armor? Yeah.
1: In Afghanistan, one of the things about American defense policy is you don't want Americans to get hurt. So you spend a lot of money, get them good body armor. And every time an American soldier is injured and some of our allies had the same uh, policy, you have to report what they were wearing down to each piece of. And the idea is we are going to prescribe all of this because we our people are so valued and so important. Where you're there to build confidence and rapport with the Afghan people who don't have body armor. And they are living out in the same areas. And so if you go to visit them, and I'm going to visit a, a district a governor or a province governor or just a, a society leader, and I go all body armored because – I'm so important that we don't want me to get hurt. Uh, It signals a couple things. One, it signals maybe I'm more, I think I'm more important than they are. It also signals maybe that I don't have the same courage they have. And so as I'm walking around and dealing with them, for me to be in this, you know, suit of chain mail equivalent, I I think it's in a very uh, dangerous thing. I was trying to send a message that I trusted them. They were going to secure me when I'm there, and I trust them. And, and that sort of gets down to the Pashto idea of hospitality. So I thought it was very, very important. I had to wrestle with the idea that there was going to be a certain part on the American side that says, wait a minute, what's he doing here? You know, We've got a policy. He's violating it. But when you're in a four-star on your last assignment, okay, what are they going to do? And I thought it was uh, important to send that part of the message
0: uh, as we did it. And if if you have – so you mentioned the the hopeless dilemma earlier where you sort of engineer putting people into a situation where none of the options are attractive. Um, We're here in Silicon Valley. A lot of people fashion themselves warriors of one sense or another, and they read Sun Tzu Art of War, and they think of their business as very high stakes. But ultimately in the field, I mean, you guys are dealing with life and death decisions. So I'd I'd love to hear in the cases – where something goes wrong so you make a decision people go out on a raid there are more fatalities than expected and you have to operate rationally and effectively the next day what would your internal self-talk sound like and then what would you say to the the team to get them ready for the next day
1: yeah, a little bit of historical context. If you think about it, and you can compare this to earlier times of war, but the first part of after 2001, we were worried about Al-Qaeda, worried about Afghanistan. We went in, and it turned out to be remarkably rapid and, relatively speaking, low cost in terms of casualties and whatnot. And then Iraq, actually the invasion, turned out to be the same way. So there got to be this sense that, okay, this isn't that hard it's not going to take this long, and the cost will not be hard. We have a few fallen heroes, and we celebrate them, but we don't think it's going to be a grinding attrition. Then as we got into the difficult era after fall of 2003 and got into 2004 and five, something different happens. One, we started to realize that this was going to be very hard. And every time we lost a comrade, they were not going to be the last. And that's a different mindset because then people start to make their personal calculation. They said, how long can I do this before the roulette wheel hits me? Uh, And, you know, is it going to even come out right? If we pay all this price, are we going to have a successful outcome? And that's a different mindset as well. Um, What I found myself was if you stay focused on the mission and everybody understands the cost of that, when you – have a an outcome where people are killed or wounded. Uh, if you let yourself freeze up with either the self doubt that maybe you made a mistake, or this sense that there's just no there's no exit to this maze, then of course I think it, it's very difficult to uh, to make those kinds of calls. You can find yourself locked up. In the, in the summer of two thousand five, I had found that we just couldn't do what we had to do without bringing more of our force over. We had a third of our force deployed all the time and then two-thirds back training and getting ready. And that was, that was about the tempo we could maintain for a long, long time. But we had a period when we needed two-thirds of the force in the fight. And mathematically, of course, because the last third's back on alert in the U.S., that's not indefinitely sustainable. And just at the time we made the dec- I made the decision to do that, um, we started taking a bunch of casualties, and when you take casualties in a very elite force it 's not the nameless rifleman at the end of the squad that nobody knows. It is Chris who I have served with for ten years i 'm the godfather to one of his kids i 'm married to his sister i mean that's that 's uh, the effect Lawrence, uh, t e Lawrence writes about it as ripples in a pool that go out through these small communities tribes and, and really, our forces were a tribe so suddenly the effect of that can cause you to to be even more impacted by. Ulysses S. Grant used to say that he didn't visit hospitals much because he found if he went and he saw the terrible carnage for which he was responsible, he'd lose his nerve to command it. Um, so what I think happens is you don't become detached from the loss and you don't uh, go into denial. What I found is you keep yourself focused on the objective. And you say, this is what we are doing, this is important, this is attainable, and the steps we are taking to it are the best steps I can figure out. They're they're uh, responsibly arrived at to the best of
0: my ability, and they are judiciously executed to the best of what we can do. So this would be potentially what you just said, what you would sort of remind yourself of in those moments?
1: Yeah. And of course, you don't say that quite that explicitly in the organization. But the first thing you do when an organization suffers a loss is not tell them, you know, don't let people marinate in their grief. They can grieve. Uh, When I was in Afghanistan, the German army got in a firefight. And they had four of their soldiers killed. And it was the first four German soldiers killed in combat since World War II. And so I flew up to be with this company, and they were literally in shock. And they were all in this room trying to figure out, how do you process this? Because we go to war every few years. Um, The Germans' fathers hadn't been at war. Maybe their grandfathers had. And certainly no one in active duty had ever had a soldier killed in combat under their command and their or a comrade so they were trying to figure out how to how to figure this out how to process the whole exactly. thing exactly and so what i told them was that's what happens in war you don't you don't get the enemy gets to do that you get to kill him he gets to kill you and what you do is you get right back at it and you get right back at it right away and stay focused and that's i think the best catharsis you can do
0: difficult as it is get back on the horse exactly Chris, I'd love to uh, segue here for a second uh, to, to ask a question that I'd like you to answer in two different ways. Uh, so the, the question is, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind? And I'd like to ask you who that person would have been when you were in the field, sort of operating at the highest level, uh, and who that person is now, if they're different. We can also come back to that because it's not a small question.
2: It's a great question. Um, But if I'm, so I'm trying to think of it in in a, through a military context, if I was um, going back to my earliest days, um, my earliest days, post nine 11, right. Um, From a tactical level, I think um, your world sort of shrinks at that point. um, And, I'll answer it this way, and I don't know if this gets to the exact point, but I had a, I had a, a great mentor of mine um, early on in my career say uh, advice that I hate to, to, till now, which is you should have a running list of three people that you, you can or you don't need to share with them and with the world um, that you're always watching. Uh, someone senior to you that you want to emulate, a peer who you think is a better the job than you are and you respect – and someone subordinate who's doing the job you did a year or two or three years ago, better than you did it. And that's, that's, if you just have those three individuals that you're constantly metricing yourself off of, um, and you're constantly learning from, you're going to be exponentially better than, than, than you are. Um, that's great advice. So I think I had that, that probably rolling sort of, uh, lists constantly at the t- you know, top of mind as I was going through it. Um, you know, one of the, one of my earlier experiences in that, you know, in a more kinetic environment uh, inside of um, the JSOC world. You know, I remember distinctly one of my first, you know, squadron commanders who was a few years senior to me, who was the first person I thought that was really tackling the problem right on many levels, the intellectual sort of chess that he was playing on the battlefield, uh, leadership amongst the, you know, pretty elite organization, and then his personal cor- courage and how he approached the mission. Um, and, you know, those people, I think in, in, in any good organization they sort of roll in and out of your lives and so i didn't have a person that i was constantly looking to i always had someone that was filling that sort of space for me um now as i look back on that um and it's funny i was just thinking about this person the other day for some reason i'm now 2 years older than they were when they were in that spot but sort of time freezes you know and you as you look back on these moments um i was actually thinking about the other day thinking i'm i'm Maybe what eight years shy of as old as Stan was when I was his aide de camp. That, how did how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Sneaks up, sneaks <laughs> yeah, up. On it you. does sneak up on you. So you know, as soon as I know it, I'll I'll, I'll have this frozen imagery of you know then General McChrystal who was that person for a lot of us for many years and i'll suddenly think wow I'm, I'm two years older than he was when i was but you still you know i think that's part of the beauty of how the human mind works you have these people captured in time and they you.
0: is there anyone now that uh, you know you're working a lot in the private sector anyone aside from say jobs who comes to mind uh, and, and there are people here in in the valley who would argue that jobs in many many ways was uh unsuccessful uh, perhaps not the happiest guy. Perhaps not the happiest home life, et cetera. Uh, so it comes down to kind of your personal definition of success. But these days, who would who comes to mind? Uh, and it, it could be the same person, or it could be someone else.
2: Yeah, I'll say um, you know a general general refl- reflection uh, transitioning out of the military is you know when you're in uniform, you have as many biases of the corporate world as they have of the, of the military, um, and most of them are misinformed. And what, so,
0: what are the common? Uh, perce- I would love to hear this because, of course, you know I live in San Francisco, very liberal, in uh, almost every possible uh, capacity. A lot of misconceptions and um, perceptions of the military that I think are un- unfair and un- un- inaccurate. What so? Yeah. What what are what are the military guys? Uh, I, I, the- I
2: think one of the biggest ones, probably on on the, on the civilian side, and I would have the same one if I was if I had never been served in the military, is. Um, well, you in the military, you can just order people what to do, and you know i 'm five eight a buck fifty on a good day i didn 't once in my career walk into a squadron room in a place like Development Group and tell you know a two hundred and fifty pound operator what he was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know you have to learn to lead through uh, you know influence understanding people 's perspectives, developing the right relationships, understanding the key influencers inside of your network. Um, just it's just as complex as trying to lead a lead a startup or lead lead in any division in a successful organization it takes all the same same amount of nuance I think the bias that we had of the corporate world is well if you don't like someone you can just fire them and the government <laughs> it's not that easy and they laugh just as much you can't you can't fire anybody from a you know a fortune 500 organization just like that you know yeah. um, and they they think we're we have just you know this silly perception of how easy that is so yeah. in in more ways than not, the two organizations are very similar in how they have to connect with their people and lead.
0: At least at the highest levels. I think that's very true. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the not being able to fire poor performers is a huge problem everywhere. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, involved with educational reform and all sorts of startups, for-profit and non-profit, working in the education space. And... Um, Huge challenge yeah. in public school education is being yeah. able to fire the the, uh, the poor performers instead of putting them into a rotation and just playing hot potato. Right. But uh, I digress. But uh, to, I'll, I'll get all fired up.
2: To your, uh, to your question about sort of people, uh, you know, current role models on the business side, um, I'd answer it more generally. I have uh, one of my, I think personally, my most uh, positive encounters, learnings of the last three years has been, how impressive a lot of the senior civilian leaders really are. So when you're in the service, you, under, you, you understand obviously uniform leadership, and as you get more senior, political leadership and policymakers, um, but you don't have a lot of exposure to business leadership. And I have been um, really blown away at the caliber of a lot of folks in the C-suite around the country. And I tell guys in, in uniform, men and women that are still serving all the time, you know, you'd you be amazed at how they, they work just as hard, they're just as smart, they're, they're, their lives are just as stressful. Um, they have in a different way, but they have as much on the line as, as any one of us did in, in uniform. Um, they have, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting wars. They're fighting to make uh, people's lives work, you know. So it's uh, there's a lot more similarities and personalities at the top than differences.
1: Can I jump on that? Absolutely. Because I actually agree strongly with Chris. Um, military leadership is actually Easier than civilian leadership and for lots of reasons one the military culture is this incredibly seductive or addictive thing Most military people will tell you they don't like the big bureaucracy They don't like a lot of things about what the military you do in the military but being a part of that camaraderie, being a part of that organization is just absolutely magnetic. And most people who served a while will tell you they would go back in a heartbeat to be back in that. And it's easier because, one, there's this very clear sense of who you are. There's uniforms. There's a tradition. There's this lofty mission of defending the nation. The issue of money is never on the table. The government pays you a certain amount, everybody knows. So there's no idea I'm not paid enough and Jim got more than I did. Uh, So that's completely gone, and there's also this sense of selfless sacrifice, and and maybe it's actually more than it should be because most of us joined the military because it looked interesting, and yet once you're in, you get this self-reinforcing idea that you're making this huge sacrifice to serve your nation, and uh, so I would actually argue it's far easier – than leading in the civilian world is. In the civilian world where you're dealing with markets, Wall Street, boards, employees, the vagaries of competition and all these things, I think a leader, the impressive ones that I think leave Chris and I really, really um, sometimes in awe is they can pull through all of that and they can pull the sense of purpose in the organization and the positive leadership uh, even through the challenges that, that I think those things add to it
0: yeah it's a very multi-factorial sort of a multivariate problem which we're going to come back to because I, I obviously want to talk about um, the McChrystal group and a lot of what you guys are up to what I'd love to do is uh, I have to ask this it's it's kind of a, a, a out of left field here but um, Stan do you have you ever had a meditative practice have you ever meditated um, not really when I was at
1: West Point they were Experimenting with transcendental meditation. So the psychology course I took, we did a little of it. But the the answer is no. I had
0: that just glimpse at it but never really followed through. Got it. Chris, have you ever meditated? The only reason I ask is that it's it's come up a lot in in conversations with maybe seventy percent of the people I've had on the podcast. Not all. Um and all of them are world class performers, but uh
2: um, uh the the short answer is no. I don't get up and meditate once a day, but I I do find that um, when you talk to people about what they get from meditation, um, I'm in the same mental state when I finish a, a, a good workout, which I try to work out Agreed. six days a week. Um, I got into uh, yoga practice pretty pretty intensely for about three years, and just haven't had the time for it in the last two years or so. Um, but I personally, I think the combination of a, f- a f- it has to have a physical component to it for me to reach that sort of like mental like balance state which i can do running i can do it in, through yoga some people can do it but just by sitting and concentrating but i think the end state's the same
0: yeah and i having looked at it really closely i think the the psychological and even sort of neuro neurological biochemical uh, effects of meditation are very similar to some of the effects if you look at say exercise that daily practice, uh, increasing, you know, brain drive neurotrophic factor and so on and so forth. Very, very similar kind of mindfulness effect. I'd love to, to, to ask a couple of questions from my fans and then, uh, would love to kind of spend the last portion of our conversation talking about, you know, the work that you guys are doing now, as well as the most recent book. So the first question is from uh, Daniel Moroli, if I'm getting that name. And he wanted, uh, maybe Stan or either of you guys, but Stan, I'll I'll pose this to you first, the red team concept. And he was referring to the mention in Blink, but he he was curious to know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but just elaborate on how it's used in the military. Sure. The concept of red team is
1: designed to test a plan. And so what happens is as you develop a plan, you've got a problem and you develop a way to solve that problem. You fall in love with it and you start to dismiss the shortcomings of it simply because I think that's the way the mind works. You start to say, well, this will work. And sometimes you're actually skipping over real challenges to it or vulnerabilities in it because you just want it to. And as we describe it, sometimes a plan can end up being a string of miracles. Um, And that's not a real solid plan. So red teaming is you take people who aren't wedded to the plan. And you have them take a look at it. And how would you disrupt this plan, or how would you defeat this plan? And if you've got a very thoughtful red team, you'll produce stunning results. There was a war game back before the, the uh, invasion of Iraq, where a retired uh, air for I'm sorry, Marine general officer. Uh, st- he was the Iraqis. And he didn't wait to be attacked. He attacked Kuwait. He hit the ports. He went, and he sent the entire plan into a tailspin. And there were people who said, no, no, you can't do that. They'd never do that. And he goes, well, it worked. <laughs> and, and, so maybe they would. That's it. right. He forced people to think. And so the entire idea of red teaming is, and it, yet it's hard to red team
0: your own plan. Right. Because you become too uh, sort of uh, the sunken costs cognitively. Becomes something you need to defend uh the um are there ways now i for instance, one of my uh, friends who is on this podcast, Sammy Kamkar, he gets hired by companies uh he's a hacker who got a pretty strong slap on the wrist by the FBI and so so forth not too long ago, but he's hired to red team security systems, so he'll try to break into uh you know virtually break into offices and so on so that he can help them plug their defenses before someone really malicious does that. Are there any other examples of uh, red teaming that, that apply to the the business world?
2: Well, yeah, we've, we've um, some of the work we're doing now with, with organizations, we've uh, designed systems and they, they're pretty unique and nuanced for each organization. But um, as a broad example, uh, one of our, Personal beliefs from our own experiences. You know, it's one thing to create a strategy; it's another to really have thoughtful contingency plans built in. And that's that's something that the special operations community does does really well. And so, um, we've done deep work with with the organization. Say, okay, let's whether it's quarterly rolling or or your annual strategy, let's take the time to do a separate, you know, two day offsite or what some sort of working session. You you play the competition. You play the, the 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 market analyst. You play the whoever the stakeholders are that can can read and affect your strategy, and then attack it from multiple le- different levels. You know, my, the, if the if this happens, the competitors are going to do this, how will we react? What's our media campaign? What's our PR? What's our distribution plan to react to um, you know supply center that gets hit by a hurricane? What's and you can run through all these scenarios, and then you you, you design out branch plans and. You put them on the shelf. If you don't need to touch them, that's great. The branch
0: um, plans are if this, then that. Yeah. If and this, so, then
2: that. You, you thought through um, what happens if my main supply hub on a warehouse on the East Coast gets hit uh, by a hurricane. That doesn't happen, but there's a fire on your in, your in your West Coast warehouse. So something similar evolved. You can pull that off, off the thing. You, you, you put a communications plan that everybody's already seen. You could say, hey, pull pull branch plan F7 off the shelf Here's the communication network we're going to set up. Here are the people that need to react to this very quickly. Here are the stakeholders outside the organization that we need to inform very quickly. And so when done well, it creates sort of a, a, a very relaxed sort of response inside the organization. And people on the outside see, wow, they've got, they've got a great plan in place. They're putting it into place. So the analysts are comfortable. The market's comfortable. And they can move through these things uh, very smoothly.
0: Yeah. It's, it's so, so important. I, 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 uh, I really enjoy kind of exploring that type of exercise, because it, it number one, just from a practical standpoint, allows companies to be non emotionally reactive, because you have the sort of crisis management, if this then that in place beforehand. And, um, you know, I've, I've always been kind of allergic to politics, but I've have seen a few um, documentaries, for instance, I think it was the war room about uh, Clinton's first campaign where they were very masterful at the if this, then that, what if, what if, if we get hit with this accusation or what if this footage is used, how are we going to respond? Having all that kind of in place beforehand was fascinating. Uh, Another question. This is from uh, Mike Elias and uh, the question, uh, I'll pose this stand, but Chris, it's open to you as well. What are some good ways for the average citizen to practice military strategy, any games or activities? And he put, you know, risk, comma, chess, comma, football, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great one. I,
1: uh, chess is typically thought of as the classic strategy game, and it was designed to teach future leaders how they could do that. I think you could do almost anything. I think planning football games can do it. Uh, And so I think any time you are trying to clearly define your end and then assign ways and means to that, there's a discipline to that process. And what I say is if you – if you take a game or an endeavor and you say I've got to apply these ends and then you do a calculation, what am I willing to do? What's what am I capable of doing and what resources do I have reasonably and I'm willing to put against that? You put again it's not mathematical, it's more art than that, but there's a certain underlying math to that. So I I think just going through that process to seeing whether it gets there, it's like developing a business plan, like developing a war plan. And it's amazing how often we actually skip that and then if you if you go back and look at some of the great failures in history, if you do the math on napoleon 's invasion of Russia, it starts with an assumption that if you capture Moscow, Russia will collapse. Well, that assumption was bad, and then, if you look at the logistics of it where you 're hauling you 're hauling wagon loads of fodder for horses suddenly mathematically you can't haul enough fodder in the wagons to feed the horses so unless you can live off the land it just doesn't work and the russians aren't going to let you do that so you start to uncover basic disconnects that are are not difficult to come up with but we
0: we almost are in avoidance we don't want to look at the hard reality of the math so, so, I want to follow up uh, and then I'd love to hear from you, uh, Chris. So, on that, so chess, uh, one of my closest friends is uh, Josh Waitskin. He was the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer. Amazing strategist um, and uh, very good problem solver. But I would ask you would you rather have, if you had to, if if this was all things equal, a very good, not grandmaster level, but very good chess player, or a very good backgammon player. And the reason I I ask that is because chess is a game of complete information. Backgammon, you've got the the dice to deal with, or the die. I'm not sure. I'm mixing up my plurals here. And the doubling cube, where you can have someone raise the stakes and then double the stakes again. So it's a game of incomplete information. Um, would you have a preference? Well, I would, and it would be backgammon. But let me talk about
1: why on chess. I think chess was more appropriate in an era when things moved more slowly and in a more uh, complicated but not complex way. Mm. Um, complicated mean more pieces but not complex,
0: meaning unpredictable.
1: More, that's right. More mechanical. If you think about it, if you and I were playing a game of chess right now and we each had our 16 chess pieces – And I moved, you moved. I'm against you, and we're both micromanaging our teams. But what if, through the dynamics of shared consciousness, all of my chest – pieces could decide on their own, and they could communicate amongst themselves. So in fact, you aren't really playing me, you're playing the combined intelligence and flexibility of my 16 chess pieces, and they can move whenever they want, they don't have to wait for you to move. Suddenly you say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. But that's the environment we're in now. You're not against one iconic decision maker, you're against this networked uh, set of competitors, maybe they're in coordination, uh, intentionally, maybe they're unintentionally coordinating. And so what I would argue is chess actually may reinforce a more mechanical structured game than the world allows right
2: now. Uh, I like it. Uh, Chris, do you have any additional thoughts? Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I, I would, um, offer that. I think being on a team is important um, from as early age as possible, and that doesn 't you know I have two children i don't it doesn 't matter to me if they grow up to be olympians or or just barely enjoy sports, but I think it 's important to be on a team and that could be a chess team debate team, an individual sport like a wrestling team, a team sport like football, but just being part of that sort of collective mentality and understanding your strengths, how you can support others, um, the discipline of being on time the Personal uh, fault you feel when you, you know, you don't work as hard as your teammates or you come up short in, in a game. All of those are just critical life lessons, and the, and the, I think the best leaders I've seen in business, military, any space, um, not necessarily star athletes, but had a real early exposure to what to what it meant like to to be part of the team and support those on your left and right.
0: Uh, Stan, one more question um, that is that is, um, and then we're going to segue into. Uh, everything you guys are working on now. Uh, During your experience teaching at Yale, um, what was something that surprised you, good or bad, about the students in your class? Maybe it's good and bad. Yeah, it it certainly surprised me. Um, I thought that I was going to go to Yale,
1: and because of the history, they were going to be politically liberal and biased in that way, and therefore sort of closed-minded to open things. And I found that they are not that at all. They are not liberal they 're not conservative they 're skeptical, and that 's a new quality. They are skeptical of how government works they 're skeptical of how business works they 're skeptical at how people who try to influence them operate and Because I teach leadership and you 're talking about how do you lead something, suddenly, I realize that the constituency that they represent and i don 't think they 're you know completely unique I think they 're largely representative is we are dealing with a group of people who want to test the hypothesis. They are loyal, but in a different way. They aren't slavishly loyal to uh, even a set of ideas or a party or anything like that. They're not what their parents were. They're what they are. And to me, that's a pretty big difference. I think generally it's good. But at the end of the day, I do think they are going to have to migrate from being just free agents too, I think they're going to have to find that they are going to have to come together to move things in one direction or another and and hopefully that'll come naturally
0: and that is just to you by that by that you mean to partner with groups of like minded people but before you can have like minded people, you have to determine what you share in common exactly but not be dogmatic
1: about what you are don't say you know, I remember I, I hung up with a guy, hung around a guy when I was young who said his father told him, in every election I want you to vote for the best candidate, you'll find it merely coincidental, coincidental that's always a Democrat. <laughs> um, and you grow up with that. And so I don't think they grow up with that, but what I do think, they're going to have to come together to make certain things happen, and hopefully that'll happen organically.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I've, I've taught a bit at uh, Princeton in high-tech entrepreneurship. And um, yeah, I, f- I found that wherever, you know, the, the case study method is used, and there are many, many schools that use that though, but uh, basically forcing them to role play in a, a inquisitive way that tests those sort of opinions they might hold dear, um, vets for some really interesting students. Uh, it's been really fun to to see what the students have done after graduation. Uh, I'd love to talk about the McChrystal group and, and what you guys are up to as well as, as your new book. Uh, so... I'm not sure the best way to to start off. Uh, maybe uh, Chris, do you want to give give uh, perhaps an overview of, of you know how it came to be? Sure. What you yeah. guys are up to?
2: Yeah. The um, so the group itself was uh, founded as as Stan retired, really early 2011 was incorporated. Um, so going into you know where we're at, fourth year or so. Um, the idea it's based on a, on a thesis, which is uh, we. We're part of something very unique uh, that's affecting the entire world right now, um, and because of the you know the actions on nine eleven, we get pushed into uh, we the military collectively uh, got put into what I think of as a bit of a time machine, and so we uh, were exposed early to the fact that the traditional organizational models of the seventies, eighties, nineties, the late twentieth century, which were built around a foundation of creating scaled efficiency, uh, and we had refined that to, to a zen level inside the special operations community, when we put that model into today's reality, which is uh, fighting distributed networks of individuals that can move uh, information at the speed of light, literally, just by using cell phones, YouTube, email accounts, etc., uh, can quickly outmaneuver and find the gaps that exist inside of Hierarchical bureaucratic organizations. Uh, we started to feel that pressure in 2004 in Iraq. Uh, went through this uh, series of changes under you know five years under uh, Stan McChrystal's leadership of the organization and the other leadership teams that started to evolve around that. What we became was this hybrid model that retained the strength of a traditional bureaucracy. But when we needed to, which was really on a on a nightly cadence for years and years on end inside of Iraq and Afghanistan, we moved as a uh, decentralized distributed network that had incredible amounts of autonomy, but was allowed to move independently because we were tied into such a strategic understanding of the problem set. And so...
0: So it sounds like you were sort of moving from, uh, excuse the... the uh, the comparison but so from the spider to the starfish but with still the economies of scale that's and right. leverage of a large organization
2: that's right retaining that you know because bureaucracies are still very important they, that's how in the, in the military that's how you train soldiers that's how you deploy aircraft that's how you budget um, same same holds true in, in large organizations but you also have to be able to move with speed and accuracy that that networks allow for um so they can no longer be ignored and so that was the thesis we went through this change and we we thought this this Matters because Al Qaeda is not different because they're they're better in in almost every way. They're worse than insurgent groups that we faced in the you know we and other militaries have faced in the past. Their ideology is really flawed. Their 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 actions are, are horrible to the local population that they're trying to to affect. Yet they're able to grow and expand, etc. And they're they're still a, a real threat out there. And so, what makes them so good? It's the information age. And so, if we we're facing this problem everyone's probably facing some form of us. So let's take this thesis out into other spaces and see who we can partner with and help them think through these things. And, and we've worked everywhere from consumer goods to finance to technology, um, and everyone has some version of this uh, this problem that they're facing. They're trying to grapple with, how do I transition my organizational leadership model into the 21st century?
0: Um, Stan, the, uh, so I'd love for you to... Maybe answer two things. The first is uh, explaining the title of the new book, uh, which the the chess discussion made me think of, of course. Uh, And then perhaps some of the... The insights or learnings that you guys have had uh, that have been most surprising or useful to the uh, businesses that you've worked with? Sure. First off, the, the title of the new
1: book, I think, is exactly right. Unfortunately, it's not the one I recommended. I, I had recommended one called The Proteus Problem, which was designed to allow organizations to deal with shapeshifters. But I was talked out of that, and I'm very glad I was, because Team of Teams really is based on the idea that we have this worship of the concept of teams. You bring people together. They get this trust in common purpose. They can finish each other's sentences, and they have this ability to do great things. But the reality is teams have limits of scale. If you go back to ancient history, the size of a Roman infantry company, a century, was 100 people. The size of an American infantry company now is about 100 people. And it's that way because there are limits to how many people you can know and the interactions you can have where that personal connection is important. So once you get above a certain size, we'll say 100, 100, Uh, suddenly you can't be one big team. You can have banners in your company and you could say we're Team X, but the reality is you are a series of teams. And that series of teams can have several things. One, they can be under the command of a headquarters, and then you've got these separate teams. Could also be silos into which they have sometimes insular cohesive cultures that may be very strong, but they may not be very well linked to the other teams. And the challenge we found is when I took command of Joint Special Operations Command, we had these amazing small teams that inside what they were, were unparalleled. The problem is they weren't linked together as a team of teams effectively. So. We didn't get the synergy of having those teams, the effectiveness of what was learned on team one wasn't automatically transferred to team three and the challenges or the effect on the battlefield that. Team three had overcome wasn't enjoyed by team two because they just didn't know about it and they weren't in that constant interaction. And what we found is that interaction can't come through the higher headquarters. It has to go directly, watched by the higher headquarters, facilitated by the higher headquarters, created, you could say, the ecosystem for that created by the higher headquarters. So as we moved to deal with civilian firms, we found certain things work a lot. One we found the The comparison to what we found silos and uh, insular cultures tends to be uh, pretty universal. That slows decision-making. It also takes away that sense of ownership that people have who are too far from where the decision's made. Then you become an executor. You get a piece of paper, do X. You don't really feel as though you're vested in that. And so there are a number of things that, that we found worked. One is radical transparency works. Now, we are not saying that we go to a a system without organization because, as Chris described, we believe in a hybrid system. Reorganization is not the reflexive response that I think people should do, but they should look at the culture and the processes for our information flows. We went to a daily video teleconference across the entire command where everybody got what was happening. That was what, 8,000? It it started about 50, went to about 8,000. And every day, everybody could get all this update. It's like going in the quarterback's huddle, everybody here in the situation, somebody saying, I can beat my defender. And everybody goes, okay, I got that, and here's where we go. And so as a consequence, we found that did two things. One, it informed the organization, which allowed people to, to execute on their own without more instruction because they knew the situation. So they didn't have to have guidance. And two, they felt like they were part of one big effort as opposed to it wasn't about their batting average now. It was about whether the team won. And that was a very important
0: dynamic. And and we find that works in in corporations very, very well. And uh, I I have to ask, I know we're uh, bouncing around a little bit, but Chris, what was your experience uh, in the field during these uh, teleconferences with 8,000
2: yeah so i I was, I was able to see it at a few different levels um one being sort of a you know a, a younger uh, member of the force out there with a you know on the ground so so to speak and which is you know that's t- two thousand three two thousand four so you're sort of tangentially aware of some some changes going on but you certainly are seeing a lot more inclusion uh, information flows etc um my r- first real exposure to the change was um, a few years later when I was Sort of, the, I was a mid-manager, so I was sort of an operations level um, officer in, inside the, the the broader task force. And at that point, you started to see, wow, I'm I'm really being me, and hundreds now thousands of others are being invited to this conver- conversation and hearing not just what you would expect, which is, you know, direction from the top. What you were hearing was a conversation between senior leadership and then all the way down, sometimes all the way down to the tactical level, and really creating this constant understanding of, to Stan's point, uh, in the huddle, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? Okay, what player are we going to run next? Break. And we did this on an extremely tight cadence of uh, every 24 hours for about 90 minutes for years on end, seven days a week, which seems, you know, we always kid around that, you know, an efficiency sort of guru would say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill that because that's a waste of man hours and money. But it became the most important 90 minutes of your day. And what it allowed you to do was, because we existed on this 24-hour cadence, not because we wanted to, but that was, this, that was the speed at which Al-Qaeda reset itself. And so if you plugged into nothing else, you went to this massive forum, because then you had 22 and a half hours of autonomy. And you were you were extremely informed. You could run your plays independently. And then you, you came back into the huddle and you re-synced with thousands of others and you'd hear real-time learnings from around the battlefield and it would shape your thinking for the next day. And, and, and it was the consistency of that pattern that allowed us to really – suddenly now we're, we're thousands of people around the globe and our decision-making cycle is faster than a, a three-person uh, terrorist team running around Baghdad.
0: Yeah it's it's so important I think also and I know we're running up on time so I'll I'll wrap up in just a few minutes I uh, have have one or two more questions but the understanding I think these principles are so key and that's why I really want people to check out team of teams and we're going to we're going to get to how they can learn more about uh what you guys are up to in terms of different websites and so on but uh, because you look at say a tool, right? So that the video conference is one tool, uh, software like Slack has become hugely popular and powerful in the startup world precisely because it serves a very similar function. It helps to, to, to allow this kind of rapid communication and iteration without becoming a glut of 20,000 threads of email. Um, uh, so the, the question I wanted to ask last question, um, and then uh then I'd love to hear where people can, can learn more about everything and I'll put a ton in the show notes for people listening, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash uh podcast for all the show notes. Uh Stan, if you could offer if you if you had to offer your, let's just say, 30 year old self some advice, what advice would that be? Wow. Um
1: I, I think up through probably thirty five I was very much a control freak because the size of the organizations I commanded and I was part of were based uh, were small enough where I could micromanage them and I had a fairly forceful personality if you worked hard and studied hard, you could just about move all the chess pieces, no problem. About age 35 to 40, as you get up to battalion level, which is about 600 people, suddenly you're going to have to lead in a different way. And, and what you're really going to have to do is develop people. And so it started to become, and, it, and the advice I'd give to anyone young, is it's really about developing people who are going to do the work. Unless you are going to go do the task yourself then the development time you spend on the people who are going to do that task, whether they are going to lead people doing it or whether they're actually going to do it, every minute you spend on that is leveraged, has exponential return. I used to tell people we had a five-day training week in a uh, in an infantry battalion or company. And if you spent five days training and then you sort of spent, you know, maybe at the end of the last day, sort of cleaning up, you're going to be at a 20% level of effectiveness. If you spent four days training leaders, developing leaders, and then spent one day out there actually pulling everybody together and scrimmaging, you're going to be so much better, but yet you don't think of it. We want to rush to the field and and try the whole thing, when in reality, we haven't put the pieces in place in the professional development.
0: So I think it comes back to developing leaders in, in every sense. That's something I need to think long and hard about. I'm I'm still that control freak with the strong, forceful personality. doesn't always doesn't always scale. So, <laughs> homework assignment for self, uh, Chris. What about you? Advice to th- your 30 year old self, or any 30 year uh, any 30 year old for that matter.
2: Yeah, I think um, probably for me. So I was sort of knee deep in my. Um, special operations career at that point, really starting to break into what would be considered the next level. Um, I would go back and say, Hey, the number one thing you're doing right now is developing a set of relationships that are going to carry you through not just the next 10 years, but really through the next period of your life. Um, I remember hearing someone tell, tell told me once, you don't really develop um, friendships after college. And, I don't believe that at all. I think you develop a series of relationships at different periods in your life, and that happens to be, I think, that 30 to 35 range is a critical period for most people, because you've got your college friends, you've done something professional, now you're getting into the next level of what what you're going to be in the professional space, and the the knee-jerk reaction is to focus in on yourself and say, this is when I prove that I'm going to be a in the C-suite someday where in reality, what you're doing is developing a, a set of peer friendships, um, to the organization, externally, whatever. That's your, the, really the formative years of your reputation. Um, and you, if, if people will remember you as either, you know, a s- self-serving sort of track person or someone that really saw the importance of the, of the network of relationships.
0: So true. The, the, whether you're remembered as a, uh, and served personally as a relationship person or as a transaction person really holds true well this has been a blast guys i uh i want to be respectful of your time where can people learn more about uh your group the new book and so on what websites twitter accounts if they exist yeah yeah
2: yeah uh well i'd encourage everybody to go out pick up a copy of team of teams it's available on amazon obviously um so we're really enjoying that that run it's been out for about four weeks now it's on uh, ebook and, uh, and audible as well. Um, and then just www.mccrystalgroup.com. Um, Could you spell McChrystal? M-C-C-H-R-Y-S-T-A-L group.com. Um, and if, uh, if Stan McChrystal has one pet peeve, it's misspelled McChrystal. <laughs> <laughs> His staff was notorious for doing it. Sort of and an inside you. Guys, are,
0: are you guys on uh, social media, the, the, the Twitters and so on?
2: That's right. Yeah. And our links right on, on, uh, McChrystal group. I'm at, uh, uh, Fossil Chris and F U S S E L L Chris, and, and then McChrystal Group links are and at Team of Teams. At, at Team of Teams is on on Twitter as well. Great, and then we've got all our links on on our website as well. You can Perfect, follow us and I'll there. put
0: all these in the show notes, guys. So for links to the books and everything else, a lot of the resources and so on that were mentioned in this, just go to Four Hour all spelled out. dot com forward slash podcast. And thank you, gentlemen, so much for taking the time. This has been a blast. Tim, thank you. And uh, if you guys listening would like a, a round two potentially at some point, please let everybody know. Let me know. Let them know on Twitter. And until next time, thank you for listening.